everyone and welcome to 101 George Street, the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My name is John Malloy and I invite you to join me as I explore the worlds of children's literature, storytelling and creative learning. The theme for today's show is storytelling in Scottish culture and my guest for today is none other than Donald Smith. Donalds is the director of the Scottish International Storytelling Festival. He's a founding member of the Scottish Storytelling Forum, Edinburgh's Good Crack Club, and is currently chief executive of TRACS, which stands for Traditional Arts and Culture Scotland. Based in Edinburgh, TRACS is an organisation that aims to bring together Scotland's traditional arts. Donald, what's your favourite children's story? My favourite children's book is such a common choice, which is Treasure Island. And uh, I think that Treasure Island embodies it's this uh, magic of the map from which it all comes and the adventure starts. And I feel that Stevenson just manages to pull together. There's not a wasted word. There's atmosphere. There's vivid characters. And that's been a book that's lived with me uh, since childhood. You have an interest and a fascination on location and place. And when you mentioned about Treasure Islands, you mentioned about the map, and I agree with you, uh, stories that have maps attached to them, you see this with uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, it's a guide for your imagination. And I've noticed that this idea of, of place, of location, it re-emerges over and over again in the work that you, you do. Why do you think that is? There's an interesting thing about the older forms of storytelling um, based on, uh, you know, just oral traditions, but this is also picked up in films, that there's a visual structure to the story. Uh, Often that's a journey that is going through a specific landscape or through different stages. And I think there's something about all this that is just fundamental to memory is how our memory works. We remember uh, places, we remember physical things, we remember moving through specific, there's a kind of sensory aspect to it. Mm. And what I found, and this was not something that I have had grand theories about, it's just something thinking about uh, doing all this stuff so much over the years that um, having a vivid visual imagery in storytelling, whether that's uh, spoken or written or a combination of the two, is absolutely central to catching people's attention. And they used to say, and uh, we're in this kind of conversation now, the pictures are better on the radio. So it's this thing about the power to visualize. It's, it's just central. And, and um, storytellers in all media who observe that and adhere to it and are inspired by it just start, you know, three laps ahead. I, this is pure speculation, but I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine storytellers of old, back in the days when it wasn't quite as easy to nip on a train or get in a car and drive to, to wherever. For a storyteller to offer an image of a location, that in itself was a, a form of escapism, particularly if you were a, a farmer or if you were at the land. It, it was a form of escapism. And maybe that translates to now when we're given a map in a story, we can kind of imagine ourselves in that map. 
There's a whole pile of things about this power of the journey in storytelling that are, are very, very interesting. So on the one hand, you can say, yes, uh, this is something that people imagined and it moved them out into a different kind of dimension. Well, actually, one of the things that I have found very, very interesting is that when you dig back into it, people in the past did move around more than we perhaps imagine. We have this slight notion of um, people being in settled communities. But when you go back, particularly in family history, this is true of myself, but also when you get people talking about the family history and people who dig back into their family history, there's much more moving around in it than one might, might imagine. But then there's another aspect to it all, <laughs> is that the, the, the idea of nom nomadism, of uh, a nomadic way of life, almost seems kind of archetypal in our human imagination. So people speculate, well, there is a time in our own human development, deep in the way that our psychology um, perhaps developed and evolved, that involves this idea of journey. And then last of all, um, <laughs> the idea of the storyteller, perhaps really artists of all kinds, being people who travel and journey in some form into a different area of experience, that kind of links in with that as well, I think. Um, this know. is the idea of the storyteller, the bard being a shaman, or at least going on shamanistic journeys, this idea that they could, they could go someplace else and then come back with inspiration. So the, the, sh the shamanic uh, sort of gift or possession or idea, uh, you could take that as a metaphor mm. for, for art. And, uh, you know, not, not just as I say, storytelling, because I, I think there's a kind of crossover between the, the different art forms. It's, it's the power of imagination. And, and it does have a kind of, this is something else that I think gradually perhaps in the 21st century we're rediscovering i think there is a spiritual aspect to all this as well yes it's psychology yes it's imagination but it's kind of that capacity to send something of yourself out beyond into another dimension another region of experience it's also got a spiritual aspect too i think and all of these things, if you think about it, and, and we might talk about that uh, more as we go on, I think I've been heightened by this lockdown experience because I, I, it's kind of, it, it shut down one aspect of regular, normal consumer life and behavior, but it might in its own terms then have strengthened that imaginative dimension and also the ability to see a, a larger world in the immediate and the local. So that, that's the great thing. A storyteller would say, right, I'm, I'm going to tell you the story of Finn McCool. He was born there. He died there. <laughs> you know, making the 1,100th location of the expiration of Finn McCool, you know. The yeah. Mary Queen of Scots slept here syndrome. <laughs> she had a lot of nights that last in her life. <laughs> as, as someone from Liverpool, we have that situation when people tell uh, their tales of John Lennon 
and um, you'll be amazed how many places John Lennon lived and where he where he drank and and where he went to school. John Lennon was the most um, well travelled Liverpoolian there's ever been. It's interesting that in the modern uh, kind of era of uh, pop culture and stars, those idea of the the shamans and the nomads they're mm. they're they're all back in there, you know. As the founding director of the Scottish Storytelling Centre, and I wanna I wanna talk about the Scottish Storytelling Centre and the Scottish Storytelling Forum because you the work that you did during the early part of the lockdown here in Scotland was fascinating and hugely inspirational. The way you championed storytelling online and through social media, I think was really needed. And I can say that from my community, a lot of young people tuned into a lot of storytellers across Scotland who were creating these little moments of stories and communicating their stories for free just to help people get through lockdown. So as the founding director of the Scottish Storytelling Centre, I know that you have a great interest in storytelling and its place in Scottish culture. For those of us who don't know, what is the Scottish Storytelling Forum and the Scottish Storytelling Centre? So the the, the lockdown experience uh, and the way storytellers have responded to that, um, supported by the people who run Storytelling Forum and Storytelling Centre, not solely by me, it has been hugely a team effort with Daniel Abercrombie and Miriam and Fiona in the forum and, and all the other people involved. Um, but it, it reflects, I think, that there is this underlying um, attachment to storytelling in Scottish society and community. And I, if we think back in it, it's um, it's partly it's partly a thing that the the local identities and its identities. There's not some single identity or culture in Scotland were for a long time suppressed by all the official organs of culture, education, religion, politics, and all the rest of it. And um, my view is that that kind of um, stoked up a kind of importance and attachment to that localised and orally expressed culture and story and song and all the rest of it, folk drama, all sorts of things, that gave it perhaps a more central importance um, just in a society where, as I say, official culture just pretty much either ignored it or actually actively <laughs> repressed and suppressed it. So I think, I think that's one aspect of it. But I mean, it's, it's very difficult to tell. There, there's an amazingly diverse and rich tradition. So you're down there in Dumfries and Galloway, there's a wonderful Scots tradition of storytelling the back centuries there. And then we could go up to the Northwest Highlands and we would get a very different kind of oral storytelling tradition. We could go to Orkney and Shetland and Caithness and would be in a, another, in Aberdeenshire would be in another. And I, I think that that's another source of the richness and energy is the sheer diversity of it culturally. And then I think, you know, new Scots traditions have been embraced and welcomed in there. Scots Asian, African Scots, um, We've got sign language is, is a vivid uh, storytelling um, indigenous uh, language in Scotland. So that, that diversity is part of it. 
And um, I, I don't know, we, we could talk a lot about this. I, I can't pretend myself to have some <laughs> grand explaining theory. But the more that I've kind of, um, you know, dipped into that or sought to tap into that and support it, the more I'm astonished by the kind of resilience and energy of it. Therefore, I'm not surprised that that should come to the fore in the lockdown thing, because somehow it's, um, it's there and it becomes, it becomes socially important. If you think of, you know, families in isolation and people in isolation and formal education disrupted and all that stuff. I, I've just been looking again at Ivan Illich. Do you remember Ivan Illich de-schooling society? They're out of whatever. And I'm thinking, well, just a minute. We're, we're in a de-schooled society. <laughs> so what is it people are doing? I, I think that's that's an amazing thing. And I hope that um, people are going to look at all that again because, because it's, it's sort of interesting. When you said about this idea of a de-schooled society, a lot of people having to teach their children at home. And one of the ways, the best ways of teaching a child is to give them the learning through a story and make a narrative out of it. Even if something as complicated and, and very specific as, say, mathematics, you still dress that up in some sort of narrative so that they can comprehend it. So maybe an indirect result of the lockdown in Scotland and maybe further, is this idea that we've all become storyteller-like as a society. So coming out of the lockdown thing, um, one, of the, one of the things that preoccupies me at the moment, and uh, this has always been an aspect of that more anarchic and radical aspect of mm. storytelling as being owned by a popular tradition or you know, being part of popular culture, not necessarily official culture, is the need to challenge some of the presumptions of the established power structures. Mm. And you see, one of the strange things, there's two ways we could be going here, because clearly, culturally, educationally, environmentally, what all of this is telling us is that the way that developed Western society has been operating is unsustainable, is bad for our health, is bad for the planet, is probably bad for our families and communities. And you so, and yet at the same time, there's this incredible, oh, we must get back to normal. Uh, everything must go back, you know, get out there, spend, spend, whatever. Yes, get on a plane and go and trash somewhere in uh, Spain, you know, and get really sloshed. And I, I, I think this is a moment where we have to be prepared to, to uh, sort of articulate the radical alternatives. So uh, I make a parallel to that. My other big um, activity during lockdown has been gardening, right? So I'm very involved in this whole community gardening movement. Uh, I'm involved myself in two different community gardens. Now, they have absolutely flourished during this because not only are they, uh, you know, centres of health and whatever, they're community places which are spacey that people can interact. Uh, we set up bicycle repair workshops with, uh, you know, um, made food to deliver to people who are shielding and isolating. And I, I just think I don't want to lose that little bit of vision we've had into what a more locally grounded 
uh, society, not an inward-looking society, because we've got all the technology to open up and connect, but alongside all that is that sense of being grounded in our own experience, and that is where telling a story is an empowering and enabling thing, whether it's in your you know, family or a teaching thing or local community. If somebody can articulate their experience and communicate it and shape it as a story, they have tapped into an absolutely foundational human uh, skill and, um, and human power to share and communicate. And, and, you know, I totally agree with you. I think we've seen a lot of that uh, going on in this uh, lockdown thing. So it belongs to everybody because, again, you know, we, the superstars uh, aren't out there operating. I mean, it's been quite interesting. The, uh, the establishment people are in no better position than the rest of us. And some of what they've done, you know, online has been pretty crap. Um, so I don't want to lose that that radical impulse and core to it. This is an art that belongs to everybody, a power of imagination and, and communication. So that maybe that brings us back to the point, you know, why is this significant in mm. in Scotland? Perhaps what, what has happened is 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 this radical impulse to to own lockdown and to and to experience lockdown and to experiment with what it means to be locked down and what what are the opportunities and if you draw that back to your previous um comments regarding how storytelling became ingrained in scottish culture and, and the way it was almost subversive in, in terms of how it came about i think there's clear parallels there with, with maybe we are at a moment some sort of flourishing can happen as a result of this this experience, which let's face it, we haven't had to deal with in the West for many, many years. What, one of the aspects uh, of that uh, subversion thing is the humour. Mm. And <laughs> I think it's fantastic the way the lockdown has brought to the fore some excellent uh, comedy. And I mean, um, particularly examples that, of course, are the... Um, We've had these kind of formats where the uh, state powers, whether it be the UK, the US or whatever, have sought to uh, direct or communicate with uh, the wider public. And then you have these uh, comics come in and just pick that up and spin it round and, and turn it back. And immediately is exposed how... Uh, how hollow, or actually just ridiculous and absurd some of what's been put across uh, is. And there's an interesting thing as well, because somewhere, um, you see, I, I love the live thing. We, we, we don't ever want to lose the live connection, and that is going to gradually, you know, come back and be rebuilt, and we're so over the moon when we were... I, I saw a wee... Um, film yesterday of one of my granddaughters having her first sort of play day with one of her pals so they're four and five years old and it was just ecstasy they were in such joy they couldn't they almost couldn't keep their feet in the floor it was all over the moon you know fantastic so of course well that to come back but you see what the lockdown has shown is that that more personal a power of communication articulation can also use social media and the zooms and all the rest of it to to connect 
So I, I think that has proved the potential creativity of this interaction between the digital and the live, you know, the face-to-face and the more remote communication. We, we've made a virtue out of handling that. And I, I think that's, that's pretty interesting. It shows the, the potential, the creative potential that's, that's there. One of the most moving things for me, it's been really interesting, you know, um, <laughs> for debt of God, I'm not going to remember how many decades, but when we started the local storytelling club in Edinburgh, the Good Crack, in the Waverley Bar, which has been a monthly thing that's gone on come rain, shine, or, you know, forever for 30-something years and, and has been derailed by this. Yeah, it's gone online. And the amazing thing is somebody will come in from Australia to tell a story. And, and in the immediate live digital space, just like maybe at the Good Crack, you would have somebody from down the road and somebody who was visiting from Thailand and somebody who was studying from California, whatever, all there, or Ghana or whatever it might be. So that um, that's still been able to happen. And suddenly the personal can be communicated across barriers of continents, of distance, of culture. And again, that sense of the storytelling being a, a common lingo, something that, that reaches um, across cultures uh, to, to share just what it feels uh, to be human and what it feels to be human at this, um, at this time. Is that why we have the Scottish Storytelling Centre as a, as a focal point? for these stories for opportunity for people to not only to, to celebrate and remember stories from the past and explore those stories but also as a way of generating new stories and sharing new stories so i'll, I'll tell you a funny thing about this whole business of a scottish storytelling center which is kind of like is it oh yes and here's donald smith and he was involved in setting up the storytelling center etc and um, so at the beginning of things there was absolutely no concept of having a physical center. Mm. The, the whole thing began with small groups of people um, seeking to uh, you know, keep that older tradition of live storytelling to provide uh, context and spaces where that could happen and to encourage people um, to develop their storytelling skills and explore the traditions and all the rest. And it was only much further down the line that people began to say, well, you know, this is good, all this is happening, but hey, we're, we're the invisibles. This is the invisible art form or the invisible cultural movement or whatever. And they said, we, we need to, you know, we need that something above the horizon that says, here's an access point, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's where the the idea came. And I I, I remember it was so it, it was so sort of difficult. Or I, you know, I was quite reluctant about the whole thing. And I thought, well, you know, what, why do we want to saddle ourselves with a building or whatever, whatever? And in the end, I um, somebody uh, came in and interviewed every single working storyteller at that time. I think at that time we'd got to 47 across Scotland, the North, Needham, Freeston Gallery, whatever it was, and really did a quite in-depth interview with what they felt about their practice, about what was going on inside of the need. And there was this huge um, push 
for a storytelling centre in it. And furthermore, a huge push to say, and it should be in Edinburgh, we should be on the front end of whatever web. And then that to be followed through. And, and it was followed through with uh, some struggles or difficulties. But the point, I, uh, and I'm getting around someone here, <laughs> I got in circles, is everywhere needs a storytelling centre. Whether that's Bray and the stove and whatever, and in every part of Scotland, whether it's the library or it's everywhere needs a storytelling centre. And it's going to take a different um, form in different places. So the storytelling centre based in Emra has had a particular function that's developed a particular set of facilities that work well for different kind of aspects of sporting storytelling. But it can never be the be all and end all. And um, I have a lot of visitors coming, which is great, you know, and people contact me over and they're saying, we are, setting, you know, we are hoping to set up a storytelling centre. And I just always say, that is so fantastic. But, you know, I remember it will be different for you. It will be a different because of the opportunities of the different different combinations of, of things. But the core function is the same, a meeting place, a point of encouragement, of sharing skills, of exploring different aspects of contemporary storytelling and storytelling in in the past. But it, it, it'll take a different form in, in each place. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's sort of central to how we think about communities and culture. In that case, I guess, I guess the Scottish International Storytelling Festival is a celebration of that. So we have a, a, focal, a focal point, a base, as well as other regional bases around Scotland. But we also have this great big festival where we can shout to the world, just this is, this is an art form that's ours. We, we encourage it, we celebrate it, and this is what we can do. So the, the storytelling festivals had uh, developed an interesting role because during the time that all this has been stirring on in Scotland, there's been parallel things happening in other cultures across the world. Mm. And what I love about that is it involves developed societies, developing societies, uh, all sorts of different cultures and traditions. And in some cases, the values are um, reversed because societies that may not be, and cultures that may not be in um, present day terms economically rich, can be rich in story and tradition and, and you know, wisdom about ecological connection and the nature of human life and all the rest of it. So the point about the festival is, is to enable that to happen. And um, that, as you say, we, we get a shout out, but actually we get all this listening in. And uh, even this year, you know, the global lab thing, we're going to hear from India, we're going to hear from different parts of the world and, and what's going on. And that'll have this extra edge because everywhere, this, this is a, a global crisis we're facing and it does need us to dig into global human resource and that includes cultural resource and then the, the other thing about the festival and that would be particularly strong this year is is the spread across scotland so i in the time that i've been involved in this you just see more and more communities saying well just a minute what about our <laughs> what what stories do we have and and what are our international connections so it was wonderful last autumn to see the Wild Goose Festival in Dumfries and Galloway. So we, we had a, 
uh, an Arctic connection strand in the Storytelling Festival, but that was encapsulated and celebrated most strongly in Dumfries and Galloway with all that wonderful Arctic connection about explorers, about the migration of, of the geese. And to be able to have storytellers from First Nation cultures in Northern Canada coming and just exchange with that. So you see that thing, it's, it's the local is also the international. And um, yeah, I think the festival's a nice opportunity to, to sort of air all that. And, and also uh, to give, give an arena where some, some of that, what I'm saying about radicalism and response to how the world is uh, now, that, that that's part of the discourse, part of the conversation that's going on uh, around the, the festival. So festivals can do that, but they mustn't replace the 12-month um, steady state. Absolutely. And I'm happy to say that Dumfries and Galloway and Dumfries in particular, Mowbray will be looking at a hosting activities for the Wild Goose Festival for this year. Donald, I'm fascinated by this idea of site-specific storytelling and the connection with location. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So uh, we, we've spoken already about the connection between stories and places, but I feel also there's a very specific connection between storytelling and place. Mm. To tell particular stories in particular situations and locations has for me an additional sense of kind of energy and connection. And I think it's, it is a bit of an art. Now, it's, um, I, I learned about some of this, and, and we still have in Scotland a very strong example of a sort of local Shenicky type storyteller, which is uh, Shoris McPherson in Sky. And uh, for many years, I used to take people um, up to Sky, and we used to sort of make a thing of the journey, exploring different locations that went up. But the extraordinary thing was that you could walk around this community in Glendale and uh, hear the stories of that place told in the style and manner and tradition of that place by somebody of that place. And I think there was very special lessons around that for how storytelling was re-emerging and, uh, you know, uh, having a sort of rebirth in Scotland was not to lose that connection. And it's a sort of three-way connection because it's about where I'm standing, where we are standing and telling this thing. But it's also about enabling the people there to experience it. Now, there's an interesting parallel with site-specific theatre and drama here, which I've, I've also been involved a bit in. And um, when that works best, there's almost an element of ritual about it, ritual of place. We have to use this specific, we have, we have to tap into the energy of this place and the culture of this community and express it. So on a small scale and in a flexible way, I think that storytelling and location is a kind of ritual and a small r <laughs> ritual. And it's just so important, uh, you know, not to uh, people to plonk themselves somewhere and launch into a long rambling uh, sort of performance or tale. That's not what it's about. It's the story's here. It's there. How, how can we open that up for people and share it? 
So the journey, that's where the journey thing comes back in. We're walking through the landscape. Then we're reaching certain places and spaces where suddenly we can see something that maybe we haven't noticed before. What's that about? Um, Hugh Miller, uh, the great kind of um, storyteller of um, the, the North Eastern Highlands, has a wonderful account in his um, book, Scenes and Legends, about being taken round by his uncle Peter. Now, I, I have Irish uh, family. And as a youngster, I remember going round with an old uncle uh, who could just, without any, that was just completely naturally going around and say, oh, and I would say, why is that cottage closed up? Or why is that wee farm not? And off they would go, there was a terrible murder here and this, that, whatever, and you get the whole thing. And I, I don't know, I think there's something still core and, and fundamental about all that. Um, Miller's uncle Peter told him an amazing story about two young women who uh, promised having experienced the lying in of an old lady um, by the local women and they got kind of drunk and all the rest of it, absolutely promised each other that if either of them died, the other one, you know, this was at 11 or 12 years old, that the other one would be there um, to be uh, at their lying in and to wash the body and all the rest of it. And then these circumstances intervened where one of the young women died in childbirth and the other one had a child, whatever, and couldn't, couldn't go. And uh, the dead young woman came as a ghost to reproach. And I told that story. That was what, that was my first lockdown story that I told. I, I haven't done a whole lot because suddenly I thought that's the story to tell. That's the story to tell because it's about this thing, I'm not able to be with my dead. The power of that, the kind of awfulness of that. Now, in, in a kind of more sort of minor or regular way, site-specific storytelling is, what is the story to tell in this place? What is the story that's speaking to me here, asking to be told? I'm fascinated by this because uh, we mentioned earlier on in the episode that one of the joys of stories is that it can take you to a, a different place. With site-specific storytelling, it's almost as if you're accessing the ghost, the landscape itself. So rather than you escaping or going somewhere else, you're being very in the here and now. Not just in terms of physically, but uh, mentally and emotionally, you're tapping in to, again, the echoes, the ghosts of the past of that particular place. It must be an incredibly immersive, visceral experience, not just as, for the storyteller, but also for the, the audience members. I, uh, this idea of you're evoking the, the spirits of place, the mm. spirits of people past, that, I, I, I totally believe that's so important. But you see, to do that, to help, enable the audience to have that or the group or whatever it is to have that access you have to be tactful you have to think what is what do i need to do but what is enough to do what is too much to do okay but also i think that um something in yourself opens up so I again as you know, why why have I got that special attachment to that story of place? And I mean you can you can 
you can have similar experiences on location, engaging uh, audience in the right, the right kind of way, but there's something in yourself has to open up. It cannot simply be a mind or rehearsed performance. So although I completely recognize this huge kind of uh, cottage industry of how do I improve my storytelling skills and what is there, all of which is valuable and whatever, but these things have to serve what your core cultural and personal and social purpose in sharing particular stories with particular people in particular places. Why you are doing that is the more important thing. And, and the rest of it is, is a secondary support. And um, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've witnessed, I've, I've been present supportively at things uh, involving a, a lot of different storytellers who are emerging and developing, which is all absolutely good, but which don't, don't actually quite manage to connect. And um, I think it's that thing that it's, it's a kind of gradual learned process. I spent a lot of time listening uh, to storytellers before I ever opened my mouth and told a story because I, I just, it's like, there's a, it's like music, like, you know, it, you have to tune the inner ear. You have to tune the inner ear uh, to what's really going on in a storytelling. And the site-specific thing somehow coalesces and concentrates that, you know? Yeah, I think it also highlights the responsibility that a storyteller has to their audience and to the community that they're operating in. It's not just a case of, of telling a, an entertaining tale. Um, there's more to it, I think. There's more significance there. Donald, we're running out of time, but before we go, I really would like to talk about any projects that you happen to be working on at the moment, um, any projects that you have in the pipeline for the future, maybe post-lockdown. Through the, through the lockdown, I've been um, actively gathering uh, traditions, lore and folk tales from across uh, Scotland, England and Ireland about gardens and gardening. And uh, it's a combination, really, of observing and kind of, um, you know, what's going on in each month in the garden cycle and all the extraordinary different things in the different kinds of gardens. I just happen to be quite lucky. I'm, I'm here in the south edge of Edinburgh in the foothills of Arthur's Seat, and I'm just surrounded by everything from the old medieval gardens of the old town to big housing estates with community gardens and green space to old landed estates that have been developed in different ways. There's multiple gardens. So what's going on there month by month? And how has that been connected with storytelling in the past? And I'm just, there's a, there's a universe of interesting lore there. And I would like to channel that maybe some, it's going to be a project, it's going to be a publication. I want to channel that back into the community garden movement now to say, uh, look, uh, here, here's an aspect of storytelling resource and celebration of connection with nature and the seasons and all the rest that belongs to you. This is, this is your tradition. And um, so that's, that's been a kind of um, sort of personal project through this, but connects with the, the, the lockdown uh, kind of thing. 
Also, I wouldn't like to leave this without mentioning that one of my interests, of course, has always been the connection between uh, oral storytelling and Scottish literature. And uh, it's just that's so important to children's literature. And why is it that Scotland has played such a big part in the evolution and development of children's literature? So uh, my thought about that is that uh, there is a big connection between the inspiration of local storytelling and oral traditions, if you look at that, and, uh, you know, Barry, um, and then um, literary forms and expressions, and some of that energy in the children's literature, you, you know, has, has come through and then has spilled back into uh, storytelling traditions as well. So that's, that's a very creative relationship that I've, I've always been interested in. And, uh, you know, that's something with Moat Bray and the Storytelling Centre and Wild Goose and all these things will continue to explore and to celebrate. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and before we go, when you mentioned about the stories connected to gardening, my grandfather owned an allotment and he told me a, a story which I remember at the time thinking that is very strange and very um, primeval in that you got the some gardeners believe in giving back to the earth. So in order to encourage a good harvest of whatever crop that might be, they would cut their thumbs and give it back into the earth. And when you were mentioning that, and mentioning that the stories connected to gardening in particular, that just literally popped into my head, that old story yeah. of my grandfather telling me that. And I'm just thinking, that's quite pagan, if you think about it. This idea of having to give back to the earth with a sacrifice of blood, very strange. No, no, that's, that, that's wonderful. And of course, it's like, so that was an Fries and Galloway thing as well, you know, to seal an agreement, you whack thumbs, you have to lick your thumb mm. and connect your thumb. So this is a bit like in lockdown, we have to bump elbows. This, this wouldn't be allowed currently, but, but if, you, if you'd come to an agreement, you whack thumbs. So it's interesting that there's something about, that's, I think that's very interesting because of course, the, uh, the organ of the body that's in constant use in gardening is the hands. Yeah. It's just constantly alive in relation to the there. So that idea that you would spill some blood for your thumb, that will be coming back now, John, <laughs> widely in community gardening. <laughs> it'll be all your fault or your grandpa's <laughs> fault. Donald, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Thank you so much for appearing on the show. It's been a real insight into the cultural significance of storytelling in Scotland. Thank you. All the very best.